We're picking up where we somewhat left off, but we actually skipped over, knowing that we had a baptism this morning. I skipped over a few verses and went further last week, and now I'm retreating back to verse 13 through 15 for this morning's text. Now hear the Word of God, Matthew 19, beginning at verse 13. Then little children were brought to him that he might put his hands on them and pray. But the disciples rebuked them. But Jesus said, Let the little children come to me, and do not forbid them, for of such is the kingdom of heaven. And he laid his hands on them, and he departed from there. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we ask that you would tune our hearts in with the heart of your Son, our Lord Jesus. We pray that we would love what he loves, hate what he hates, that we would have our thinking after His own thinking, and our heart after His own. We pray, Lord, that the Spirit of God would now empower the preaching of the Word, that You would open our ears and open our hearts to help us, to enable us to be attentive to the Word which can only be spiritually appraised and discerned. So we ask the Spirit of God to now do the work of grace in our lives to help us to hear this Word and receive it and to bring forth the fruit that would glorify Your name. We pray You would give us an understanding of the text before us and how to apply it in our lives, in our daily active faith, as we live for Christ and we walk by faith, not by sight. And so we ask that Your Spirit would fall fresh upon us now, corporately and individually, and pray that You would bring forth the illumination from Your Word this morning, In Jesus' name, Amen. You may be seated. As we come to a service like this, it begins with the baptism of an infant. I'm very well aware that we have members in our church that do not hold to pedo-baptism, and it's not a membership requirement here. Perhaps we even have some visitors, and we do have a number of visitors today that may come from the perspective that Uh, does not hold that we should baptize infants as well. And I actually grew up in that tradition as a Baptist myself. So I I speak with reserve, I speak with sensitivity, but I also want to um, speak the truth uh, the way that uh, the Scripture reveals it. And certainly I confess that I have my own uh, fallacies and errors. We all do. But may God give us wisdom to be unified in one Lord, one faith, one baptism, and God and Father of us all. So how we view our children. That really was the question upon me several years back as I began to think about raising my own children up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. How do we view our children? And how do we view our children in their relationship with Christ? That really is the answer, or the question. And that's the question I would like for us to consider this hour. Do we view our children as heathen until they come to a crisis in their faith and then come to an awareness of a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ in them? Well, certainly we all have to have a personal and saving knowledge of Jesus Christ for eternal life. That's not the question. Do we view our children as heathen until they have a crisis of faith in that manner? Until they have a Damascus Road experience, if you will? Some of our children will have that kind of experience, but not all of them do. Some of them are like Lydia, whose heart was gently open to attend those things of the Scripture spoken of by Paul. Do we teach our children to pray and worship and praise God from their earliest years? And if we do, if we do this while we still think that they are heathen, but hoping that their participation in the means of grace will save them, do we is that how we think? Okay, my children are heathen, but I'm going to teach them to pray and to worship God in hoping that that means of grace in their lives will bring them to a saving knowledge. If that is our perspective, what is the biblical basis? that we have as parents for including pagans in holy worship of God. See, every Christian parent will have a theology of children. 
whether their theology is biblical or not, there will be a time when Christian parents will have to reckon with these very things. And how you think about this will determine how you treat your children. It will influence how you raise your children. But it also has an impact on your view of God and how you think about Him. And how you think about His promises. And how you view your God will also have an impact upon and influence the way you live and the way you think about God. So this morning I want to preach on you about the faithfulness of God with our children. During the 17th century, a religious revival was going on in Boston, where an unusual number of converts joined the church. It was in the year of 1634 in the first church of Boston that the practice of sharing one's conversion narrative to the church was first practiced prior to their admission to the church. The conversion experience was shared with the congregation, and the congregation would vote them into membership or not based upon their belief, upon their testimony. It is in this context that the 17th century New England Congregationalist adopted what is known as the halfway covenant, or about three quarters of them did at the time. The context for this was that there was a generation of Christians that had been baptized and, and grown up in the church as professing believers and made the profession of Christ in front of the congregation. And the second generation who then grew up under them, or the next generation I should say, and they married and they had children of their own. But this next, the second generation, children of those who had professed Christ, they grew up in this uh, church, but they had not publicly professed their conversion narrative thus making their, in, their children now ineligible for baptism. This halfway covenant then allowed the second generation, the parents, who the church believed to be unbelievers, to then have their children, the third generation, baptized. Alright, you track with that? So let's say my generation grows up, we're believing, we, we professed our conversion experience before the church publicly. My children, let's say, the second, the next generation, grows up in the church, baptized, but does not make their public conversion narrative public, and therefore deemed by the church as not believers. They did not have a profession of faith. Then they get married, and they have children, and then their children would be ineligible for baptism because their parents were not professing believers. All right, are we tracking with that? So that's, that's the context in which this covenant, this halfway covenant, uh, came about. But these parents who were then allowed to baptize their children were not allowed any of the other privileges of the church, like coming to the table. Often these parents were Christian in their behavior, but they never publicly professed their conversion before the body. So they were allowed to baptize their children, but they themselves were not allowed to come to the table. Therefore, they're halfway in the covenant and halfway not. Thus, the halfway covenant. Half in, half out. Now, Solomon Stoddard would then take that particular um, thought and that belief and some of that practice, he would take it a step further in, in somewhat of a hyper-covenantal perspective because he believed that all New England was a, a Christian nation and then that whole nation itself was in covenant with God. He went then a step further and he welcomed all covenant members to the table. That meant all of the citizens of that nation to the table. While understanding that not all of them had a profession of faith. 
His view of the Lord's Supper was a way to evangelize the unbelieving covenant members of the nation church, if you will. So in his hyper-covenantal view, he went so far as to deny the very essence of the covenant relationship itself. He saw, then, the means of grace, not merely for believers and their children, but also a means to evangelize the pagans. Unfortunately, his view did not stick for very long or win the day. But I will say this, there have been variations on the theme of a halfway covenant throughout history of the church. And some are very prominent and prevalent today. Some believe that children are not in covenant at all, in any sense of the matter, with God. And they only come into covenant when they make their own profession of faith based upon a crisis conversion experience. This would be perhaps a no-covenant view. They may dedicate their children to God when they are born, but they otherwise see them as unregenerate, infidel pagans to be evangelized. However, there are some of these non-covenanters, and thankfully so, inconsistently, who still teach their little infidel pagan kids to pray and worship God in their unregenerate state. I'm going to say that's a happy inconsistent. I'm happy with that inconsistency. Rather than waiting for a crisis of faith in order to even introduce them to God, teach them how to pray, teach them how to praise and worship. But like Stoddard, they use the means of grace on what they believe are unbelievers as an evangelistic tool in order to bring their kids to Christ. So in their non-covenantal view, they are borrowing from a covenantal view in order for their children to even participate in the worship of God. But their unbelieving inconsistency can lead to great problems and even ruin. Others acknowledge that our children of believing parents, unlike the halfway covenant of the 17th century, are in covenant with God and ought therefore to be baptized. But they do not acknowledge that they are their children are full members of the covenant, and so they deny them the Lord's Supper until they publicly confess or profess their conversion experience. They've been baptized, they've been recognized as covenant children, now they are in the covenant body of Christ, and the full privileges and rights are available to them except the Lord's Supper. And that's again... They're halfway in, and they're halfway out. The most common perspective, this is the most common perspective among the majority of Presbyterians today, and it is a new form, I believe, of a halfway covenant. Their children are baptized, but are not allowed to communion, thus making them half in, but not all the way in. They cannot have the covenant meal, but they had the covenant sign and seal of baptism. Their children are baptized, but are not allowed to commune with Christ at His table, thus making them somewhat, in some way, half. They can worship God and they can pray. They can sing praises and they're invited to do so. And we have our family worship where fathers instruct them and even call upon them to pray. And we think nothing about that, but somehow the covenant meal is not for them. In the text this morning, the disciples rebuked the parents who brought the little children to Jesus so that Jesus would bless their little children. 
And the disciples, seeing parents bringing the little children to Jesus in order for Him to lay His hands on them, pray for them, and bless them, rebuked the parents. Here we see two different views of children and their relationship with Christ in this passage. We have this very specific narrative in all three of the synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, all having a little something different that the other ones do not have that can help us fill out some of the details around this particular event. The parents of the little children desire to bring their little children to Jesus that He might bless them. But the disciples, perhaps considering that these children were not important, of lesser importance, or not in the covenant, or waiting for their moment to come, or whatever it is, for whatever reason, rebuked the parents for bothering the Savior. Tried to keep the parents from bringing the children from coming. Now Luke, in his narrative, calls these little children specifically infants. Now whether they were all infants, or whether a majority of the infants, or whether a lot of the little children included infants, the point is this, what is evident from all of the accounts is these are children who could not go to Jesus of their own accord. Their parents took them. And for whatever reason was in the disciples' mind, they felt strongly that Jesus shouldn't be bothered by the little children. So they rebuked the parents. And the word there that the Scripture uses is to censure strongly. These are strong words, strong feelings, strong conviction that disciples had in trying to hinder this. And when Jesus saw that the disciples were hindering the parents from bringing the infants and little children to Him, Mark's Gospel informs us that Jesus was greatly displeased at them. Jesus was greatly displeased at those who would hinder the infants from coming to Him to be blessed. So then Jesus commands the little infants to be brought to Him. And the Scripture states that He put His hands on them and He blessed them. Now at this point, we should stop for a moment and just ponder that statement. He put His hands on them and blessed the little children. What do you think happens? What do you think was going on there? Well, that was just a, a nice sentiment. That that was, in a subjective kind of way, that was lovely. That was nice. That was good. What a blessing that was to see. And all of that would be true. But now we have to stop and think about this at the deeper level. If the parents were desirous and willing to bring their infants to Jesus to bless them, and if Jesus removed all the hindrances for them to do so to the extent that He called for the parents to bring the children to Him, and He moved His disciples out of the way for them to do that so that He may bless the children, what do you think the results would be of that blessing? This is not the same as if you brought your children to me to bless them. I, which I really can't do. I can pray for God to bless them, but I can't bless them. What we're talking about here is the Lord God of heaven, the creator of heaven and earth, who spoke the word and the earth became. Who spoke the word and it came out of nothing. And whatsoever the Lord speaks does come to pass. He is the sovereign Creator, even the Creator of these little children, the Creator of their parents. And whatever the Lord said over these little children came to pass. 
was efficacious. The Father hears the Son and answers Him whatsoever the Son prays. This Lord blessing the little children would have been the most profound blessing in all of the history of our entire civilization, of anyone that has ever blessed another. This is God's blessing upon the children. At God's bidding, them should come. At God's blessing in that particular context of even the parents who desired for their own children to be blessed. What a great desire. It is for parents that the Lord Jesus would bless our children? Is that not your greatest desire? You would give up every single thing in this life for the sake of the souls of your children. Would you not? All of your houses, all your property, all of your goods, every earthly possession we own, everything we would count but loss in order for the sake of the souls of our children. And no greater thing is it to know, and no greater joy do we have than to know that our children are walking in the truth. See, this was a blessing, not only for the children, but for the parents who desired this for their children. Now, let me ask you this. Do you think those little infants whom the parents brought in faith, do you think that they would be blessed if Jesus blessed them? It's a simple question. Do you think they would be blessed? Do you think it would, might take halfway? Maybe they will, maybe they won't. Maybe, maybe they'll go away from here and maybe this will stick, maybe it won't. Was there a 50-50 chance that they would be blessed? Maybe it's an 80-20%. Maybe 80% they'll be blessed. 20%, well, we know how things go. Was there ever a time that Jesus ever failed to heal a person and it just didn't work? Any time that Jesus failed to cast out the demons and, and it just didn't take... Anytime that Jesus says to the winds and the waves, be still, and they just kept roaring, didn't listen to Him? Well, what way would these little children be blessed? In what way? Would they then grow up to have lots of things, and a good job, and a nice house, and a fancy car, and, and they wouldn't get into a lot of trouble in their teenage years? Is that the, the intent and the meaning of the blessing? Do you think that the Lord's blessing would keep them from ever getting sick or ever keep them from having some debilitating disease or injury in their later years? Is, is that the point of the blessing? Do you think that what the Spirit desires for us to understand from this event that He saw fit to put in all three accounts of the Gospels, and He would tell us about it? And a couple of things we should consider about this blessing of the little children right here. There's two things. Number one, the text does not leave us wandering. And number two, Jesus' words and actions were completely consistent with the Scriptures in the manner in which we view our children's relationship with Christ all the way from the beginning. Let me look at those two briefly. First of all, Jesus takes a specific occasion to inform the very nature of His kingdom as it pertains to little children who were brought to Him in faith by their parents who believed in Him. And He's going to take this occasion to explain something about the nature of His kingdom. The parents who were bringing their infants to Jesus believed that Jesus could and that Jesus would bless their children. It's one thing to believe that Jesus can do something. It's another thing to believe that He can and will. And he, they believed that He could do this and that He would do this, and so they brought their children to Him. Otherwise, they would not have brought Him. It wouldn't have been worth their trouble. And Jesus then instructs His disciples who... He rebuked 
for keeping the infants away. And he instructs us also with his disciples now something about the kingdom. He says the kingdom of God is made up of such of these. You can see him praying and blessing and praying for the children. He says the kingdom of God is made up of such as these. He's using this moment to instruct all of us about the kingdom and children. And the disciples must have thought that these children weren't worthy of the Lord's time and attention at this stage in their lives. They had to grow up a little bit for that. But Jesus was quite displeased with His disciples in the way that they thought and the particular action that they took because of the way they thought. And the way that we think will govern how we act. The decisions we make. And here we see it in terms of children. And Jesus then corrected their thinking and He reversed the circumstances by receiving these little children into His favor. In both both Mark's Gospel and in Luke's, Jesus expands on what Matthew here reveals to us. And it says in Mark chapter 10, Assuredly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God as this little child will by no means enter it. And he took them up in his arms and he put his hands on them and he blessed them. Whoever does not receive the kingdom of God as this little child will by no means enter it. And whatever Jesus meant by His words, He meant for the little children to be instructive to us about how the kingdom of God is revealed and the nature of it. They could not come on their own strength and with their human faculties that the disciples were considering what makes an adult worthy to come when infants are not. And one of the lessons we are to learn from this narrative is that no one can come to Jesus or enter in the kingdom unless He is born again. That's true for infants. That's true for adults in their prime. It's true for aged people on their deathbed. No human faculty, no human strength of man can do that recreating work in the heart of man that is only the work of the Spirit. And it is necessary to enter the kingdom of God. Whether that person is an infant or an adult in his prime, no one can birth themselves into the kingdom of God. And as the Scripture says, Jesus is rebuking Nicodemus because he did not understand that a man must be born again to enter into the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus was thinking, well, how does a man go back into the mother's womb a second time be born again? And Jesus said, no, you don't understand. You have to be born of the Spirit of God. The rebirth is needed to get into the kingdom of God, and that rebirth is solely a work of God, and particularly that of the Holy Spirit. And Jesus will continue to teach on that very thing in the next narrative that we glanced at last Lord's Day as it pertains to the rich young ruler. With men, it is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. And he's talking about what is necessary to have eternal life and to enter into the kingdom of God. It is just as impossible, humanly speaking, for anyone of any age in any condition to come to Jesus in faith. But with God, all things are possible. It is possible for God to save the mentally handicapped. Do you believe that? It is possible... For God to save the aged person in the last stages of dementia who forgot your name and you're his child. Do you believe that? Now you're going to have to work all this out in your theology of God. 
It is possible to save the vilest sinner and to bring him into the kingdom and even bring the hardest of criminals into the kingdom. And likewise, it is possible to keep the most moralistic person out. See, salvation is all of God. It is solely by His grace and goodness. None of us deserve it. And yet He has mercy, and we should all marvel that He's ever had mercy upon me, upon you, upon us. We should marvel and never lose the luster of that great, tremendous gift that God has given to us and to our children. And as He gives it to our children, what a gift it is to us. The problem has often been thought that faith itself is in something that something that we inherently have in our human faculty. In our human fallen faculty, we still inherently have this strength, this faculty, in order to believe apart from God's grace at all. And while the Gospel appeals to us to believe the Gospel and to believe Jesus is the Son of God and entrust your life to Him, it never informs us that we can do this of our own willpower. Every man who's ever been born is equally responsible, or at least I should say responsible, to believe the gospel. Though some will have greater culpable sin than others in rejecting him. But no man is exempt from the responsibility to believe the gospel. But that's different than saying that all men have the power in themselves to believe the gospel. Wait a minute, are you saying that we are all responsible for believing that God is and that, that we are responsible for believing the gospel of Jesus Christ? Yes. And are you saying that we cannot believe of our own power and faculty? Unless God does a work in us? Yes. Well, we are in trouble unless God does a work in us. Yes. Yes. Because of your own sin and mine. You deserve it. You deserve to be eternally condemned in eternal hell under the wrath of God. You deserve that. I deserve that. Aren't we thankful that God has not rewarded us according to our sins? But the Bible is quite clear that we cannot come to Jesus in faith apart from the work of God. John 6 makes it very clear in at least three different verses there. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up in the last day. And again, later in that passage, and Jesus said, therefore I have said to you that no one can come to me unless the Father that has been granted to him by my Father. Not an infant, not an adult. Not a Presbyterian, Westminster, shorter catechized, academic, by the book, all the I's dotted and T's crossed, Presbyterian, academic pastor can't do it apart from the grace of God drawing him to Christ. But he also says, all that the Father gives to me all, all that the Father gives to the Son will come to me, and I will in no wise cast out. Do you think He's given any aged people in their aged days? Do you think He's given any students in their prime? Do you think He's given any infants in their infancy? See, God, all things are possible. And with salvation, it is only possible with God. So if we get to the point of understanding that even our faith, which we have in Jesus Christ, the way in which we receive Him, must first be given to us by God. In fact, faith is called a fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5.22. If we can receive this truth, and this becomes the first principle, then we can believe that Jesus can just as easily save infants as he can save his own disciples. 
And if the disciples at this point would only recount how they became followers of Jesus, and how you may recount how you became a follower of Jesus, because Jesus specifically went to His disciples, and He named them, and He called them, and He says, come and follow Me. They did not choose Jesus, but Jesus chose them. Now, we know from the Scripture a few things. that it's, It behooves us to repeat to make sure we're clear. Number one, in the life that we live, we are all in Adam, and all, everyone are sinners in need of God's saving grace. There's not one exception, including the infants. They are not exempt from condemnation. They do not come to a place of an age of accountability and only then are their sins culpable. They are dead in Adam from the beginning and need regeneration to come into the kingdom of God. So we're all sinners in need of God's saving grace. From the least to the greatest, from the youngest to the old. But number two, there's an important thing is that we cannot save ourselves. Neither the strongest who have their faculties all with them and in the prime of their life, or those who are infants who have not had those faculties developed, or those dementia-aged parents whose faculties have waned. We cannot save ourselves. And number three, in order for us to have eternal life and enter in the kingdom of God, we must be born again. There's no exceptions to that. We have to come into a new birth. But this new birth is not something we can do. It is something that God does for us. It is something that God does with us. It is God, what His Spirit does. And when He's explaining this to Nicodemus in John chapter 3, He says, you know, it's like the wind you don't know when it comes and where it goes. You don't know really the details of this, but so is the way that the Spirit brings regeneration into the hearts of God's people. We don't know necessarily when it comes. We don't know if it comes in the baptism or times of the baptism. We don't know if it came before the baptism. We don't know if it comes after the baptism. But it comes to those who are God's. To those who the Father has chosen in the Son before the foundation of the world. It will come. And the fruit of the Spirit of that new life then, and that new regenerate life brings forth faith. And the faith are the arms that reaches out and receives Christ as Lord and Savior. Receives God and all that He has promised. Because we are only justified by faith. You're not going to get in any other way. Whether that be the aged or whether that be the infants, it has to be justified by faith. But where the Spirit has regenerated the heart, the Spirit necessarily brings the fruit in the life, and part of the fruit is faith, by which we are then justified. See, the salvation is not different for the infant as it is for the adult. It's not different for those who are in the great no versus those who are a little more ignorant of the things of God. We do know there is only one name under heaven whereby men must be saved, the Lord Jesus Christ, and apart from Him, and apart from the knowledge of Him, experiential knowledge of Him, no one will be saved. Can an infant have experiential knowledge of Jesus? John the Baptist did. And even leap for joy when he was in his mother's womb before he even came out. With God, all things are possible. So when we come to Jesus in faith, believing that he is the Son of God, entrusting our life to him, as a little infant comes out of the mother's womb, immediately comes into the mother's breast. Is there any one of us here that questions after just minutes that this infant doesn't really know who their mom is? Experientially, no. Now, can you explain this? Do you have some kind of mathematical formula or scientific explanation to tell me how an infant baby knows who the mom is and 
who is not the mom? And the Spirit of God works in our hearts so that we experientially know the Lord Jesus Christ in this, in this mystical way, but according to the knowledge of the Scriptures. And when we come believing that Jesus not only can save us, but that He will save us from our sins if we call upon Him to do so, for whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Not only do we believe He can do it, but do we believe He will do it, and so give ourselves to that. Then just know this, that God is faithful to His promise. Not 50-50, not 80-20, but if you call upon the name of the Lord, Jesus says He will save you. 100% of the time. That's how faithful God is to His promises. God is 100% faithful to His promises. Not 80-20, not 99-1, And so God justifies us when we come to Christ in faith. And the fifth principle is, we know from Scripture that every bit of this from start to finish is from God. We are chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. I, I don't understand that. And it certainly has not chosen me because He knows how I was going to act or believe in faith of His Son. That just turns it right upside down on top of its head. And from start to finish, God is the author of salvation. It is a gift from God that no man can boast. No one can glory in himself, but we can only glory in Christ. No one can take credit for coming to Jesus in his own strength, or by his own faculties, or by his sheer willpower, or by his natural abilities. No one can come to Jesus unless God is in it. And if God's in it, all things are possible. And we also see from Scriptures that God can save any kind of person. Whether it be the unsuspecting fisherman, or a treacherous, treasonous tax collector, or a thief on the cross in his dying minutes, or an infant. The kingdom of God is made up of such as these, Jesus said. That was the message of the hour. Now secondly, what Jesus did on this occasion in teaching about the nature of the kingdom was completely consistent with the Scriptures throughout the entire Old Testament and what they had revealed. And the way that they were teaching us to think about God's faithfulness to us and to our children. It's important to understand when Jesus shows up in Galilee, He didn't show up in a vacuum. He didn't just show up starting everything brand new. He showed up specifically in the fullness of time, born under the law, born of a woman, in the time when everything was ripe, based upon all of those Old Testament prophecies that He came to fulfill, all of that ceremonial law that He was the reality of. And He shows up. But we often think that the New Testament is something for us today. The Old Testament is something from back there. It's really the Old Testament for many people that, that just is extinct. It's extinct. It's been fulfilled. Therefore, let's get on with being a New Testament Christian. If you can labor to be an old, all the Bible Christian, then that should be our understanding. But the gospel from the beginning has been given in a covenantal context. But we tend to make this an individual context. It has never been given in the context in the Scripture as an individualistic way. From the beginning, God promised to Abraham, I will establish my covenant between me and you and your children after you and their generations. For an everlasting covenant to be a God to you and to your children after you. If you receive the promise of God, 
And the gospel is given to you. If you believe in Jesus for your, to save you from your sins, and you pray to Him, trusting in Him to save you from your sins, do you believe that He will save you from your sins? Second part, we all believe that. Second part, second part is inseparable to it. Will you also believe the promise that God says to you, I will also save your children if you believe that promise, and they come to believe that as well. Do you believe that? The gospel has two parts to it, not an individualistic part, but a covenantal part. And the covenantal part always includes the children with the promise to you, to you and to your children. It's the way it's been from all of the very get-go. It's the very reason, too, that when Adam fell, you fell. Wait a minute, that's not fair. No, that's, that's, that's the covenantal way in which God works He doesn't work in an individualistic way. He's not waiting for you to go and do your own sin. He counts you equally condemned because you fell in Adam. And because you fell in Adam, you then continue to sin because you have a sin nature. See, that covenantal theme and promise to you and your children become essential to the gospel. This is the good news of Jesus Christ. The very future of the gospel, see, depends upon the faith of the children. And God will see to it that His Word will not fail. He doesn't start over with a whole brand new group of people in every generation, see. God is faithful to His promises. The fact is, will you believe the promises? Let me ask you this. Is God obligated to save you if you do not believe the promise that He's given about Jesus Christ to you? Let me, let me state it, let me go in more detail. God says, my son Jesus Christ has been sent to die for your sins and to cleanse you, and you have to believe in this and receive Him for that promise to come about. Now, you can believe it with your mind. You can believe it with your emotions. But do you believe the promise to receive it and give yourself to it? If you do, do you believe that God will save you? Okay, we're not, we're not with you. If God says, Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord, that with your mouth confession is made, and with the heart you believe unto to God in righteousness, and then if you call upon the name of the Lord, He's promised that He will save you. Do you believe that? Okay. If He also said that if you believe upon Me and the promise to save your children, now are we at a 50-50? Or do you think God is faithful to His Word and His promise? The difference is, do you believe it? Oh, you might believe He will, but do you believe He, or He can, but do you believe He will? Do you really believe it? You have to digest that. Every parent here is going to have to come to a theology of children. Psalm 15, 14 says, May the Lord give you increase more and more, you and your children. Do you believe that? Second part. Speaking about the new covenant, in Jeremiah 31 and 32, the very covenant that we're talking about, that we're into today, he says, I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me forever for the good of them and their children after them. From the Isaiah prophecy we read about today, speaking about this new age, Isaiah was prophesying, and we will raise them not for trouble, but with expectation that God will be gracious. Ezekiel prophesies, saying, Then they shall dwell in the land I have given to Jacob my servant, where your fathers dwelt, and they shall dwell there, they and their children, and their children's children forever. Joel prophesies about what will happen in the new covenant when he says, and it shall come to pass that I will pour my spirit out upon all flesh and your sons and your daughters may prophesy. Peter then applies this promise in Acts 2 when he says, for this promise that Joel had even made is to you and to your children. The Bible is replete with the gospel promises for us and our children. The question is, do we believe them? Do we have faith in God's faithfulness? 
in what He has promised. Will God be faithful to answer those promises as if I claim them by faith? The parents who brought their infants to Jesus that day believed that Jesus could bless their children, and He also believed He would bless their children. And that's why they went out of their way to bring their children to Jesus. In faith, they brought their children. Their faith motivated them to action. Their faith was not presumption, thinking, oh, Jesus will do this, therefore we'll stay at home and watch the sports today. Their faith was not inactive. And they were not disappointed. Even when an obstacle stood in their way, Jesus cleared the obstacle Jesus blessed their children, held them up as an example of God's faithfulness, of God's power, of God's possibility. Lest any of us think that it is possible within our own selves. The children's salvation was not about what they could do, but about what God is doing. He is faithful to His promises. Do you believe them? I don't want to be harsh or offensive in any way in my language here. I, I do want to get this point across. In some ways, Baptists, like myself, are like the disciples who keep the infants and the little children away from Jesus. having kind of a paradigm this way, they think that they do not have faith in Jesus and that Jesus, they believe they don't have faith that He can and will bless their infant child. We bring them and we brought them to be dedicated. That's something I'm doing with this child. It's not believing what God is doing with my child. Little three-year-old Susie, who had just learned to talk, comes to her Baptist dad and she says, Daddy, I believe in Jesus. And the way her father thinks and the way he acts shows his doubts and not his faith about what she professes. She says she believes. The father doubts that she really does. And so the question is, who has the greater faith in the Gospel? And so the father living this way out, continuing in disbelief of what God is doing in little Susie, continues to sow seeds of doubt in her little mind until she is utterly confused. And even though she says she believes, the Father won't let her get baptized because He doesn't believe that she believes. Again, we have to remember that faith is not a faculty of our own, but a grace that comes from God. And it always does come inseparable from when God regenerates the Spirit in man. And when He regenerates it, Faith is an inevitable fruit that always comes. But we can teach our children to doubt. And that is what inevitably we do by default if we do not believe the promises of God and the faithfulness of God for those promises pertaining to our children. And when the Scripture commands us to raise up our children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, it is instructing us to bring up our children in the sphere and the culture of believing and not a doubting home. Believing all of those promises and all of the aspects of those promises. A home where Christ is believed and His promises that govern our thinking and, our, and govern our actions. Not to, not to have an atmosphere of fear and doubt, but an atmosphere of faith and courage. Believing not only that Jesus can, but He will be faithful to His promises. And when we live that way, 
It is an easy thing to believe God's promises that He has given for our children. It's actually easier for your children to believe those things than sometimes it is for the parents. We believe that if we bring our children to Jesus for Him to bless them, we believe that He will do so. That's the Gospel promise throughout all of Scripture. To you and to your children. And the test of the genuineness of our faith is will it act upon these things? Will you bring your infants to Jesus? Or will you be like the disciples who tried to hinder? To raise our children in the nurture of Christ requires us first to believe that faith is in the home. And that Christ is the object of that faith. Your faith is only as good as its object. And so we are trusting in God's faithfulness to His promises. We're trusting God so that we raise our children in the way that He's instructed us to, in the nurture of Christ. Not in the doubt of Christ, but up in His admonition. To love God. We teach them to serve God. We teach them to pray. We teach them to worship. We teach them to, to, to eat of the bread and drink of the wine until they come to even a greater knowledge of what God has been doing in their lives or has promised He will do. This morning I had a conversation with James. James spent the night last night in our house. He gets up. And he and I were out in the kitchen, and I asked James if he wanted to go to church this morning. James is my grandson, for those of you who don't know. He said, yes. I said, why? Because it's Sunday. I asked, well, why do we go to church on Sunday? What is it we're going to do? And he seemed a little puzzled and stumped for a moment. And I explained to him, we're going to visit Jesus. Just like we went last night and visited Dodie, and we visited with her, we're going to church to visit with God. He seemed to understand, nodded. Ten minutes later, I wanted to see if he learned the instruction I gave to him, so I asked him again, Hey James, why are we going to church today? To which he replied, not with my words, but his own words, he says, we are going to church to worship God. Trusting in God's promise that He is my God and my children's God and my grandchildren's God. Trusting the promise that I and even they are God's according to His Word. I start my conversation and my instruction with my grandson believing that he is believing. And so we discuss things from the same context and in the same framework of faith. We both believe, and we both still need our faith matured. But his faith needs a little more maturing in the knowledge of God, and so I nurture him in Christ. And guess what? I still need that growth too. Folks, our children are in a covenant relationship with God, and we ought to believe that God is their God too. That God is faithful to His covenant promise to save all who come to Him in faith. And how are we and when are we to measure if that regenerating work of the Holy Spirit, which blows like the wind, how do we measure that? Certainly it will produce the fruit of faith in the life, but sometimes the fruit comes down the road as maturity comes. And what we believe in that Gospel promise and that God will be our God, and God will be our children's God. We believe the whole package of it, not just half of it. These are not halflings. They're not half in and half out. Our children are not in a halfway covenant with God, but they are all, they're all in, for such is the kingdom of God, Jesus says. So let's treat them as such, believing that God is faithful to complete that which He began. 
It is impossible for them to be saved. It is impossible for you to be saved. Apart from the possibility that God gives us only by His grace. God is faithful and He will accomplish that which He has promised. Let's pray. Our gracious Father, we thank You for the promises that You give to us and our children how you desire to bless them, even was very displeased with the disciples and rebuked them for hindering the attendance of the infants to him, for him to bless them. And we know that what you bless will be blessed indeed. How thankful we are for our children here, and we pray that you would bless them with a saving and living faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, that you would nurture that all the days of their lives, and Use us as their parents, as their pastors, as, uh, as Christian brothers and sisters in their lives to, to continue to admonish and exhort them to live out the faith in faithfulness to the God who's been so faithful to them. And we pray that we would exhort one another and we pray that you would bless these things to their good and to the glory of God in Christ in whose name we pray. Amen.